Welcome back to the program. Short stories, films, novels, and performance art. Over the years, we've spoken to many guests that do all of these things at the top of their profession. But my guest today, Miranda July, has done all of them and done them exceedingly well. Her collection of short stories, No One Belongs Here More Than You, won numerous awards and has been published in 23 countries. Her film, Me and You and Everyone We Know, was a winner of the Camera Door at the Cannes Film Festival, as well as a special jury prize at Sundance. If there is truly such a thing as a Renaissance woman, it is our guest, Miranda July. Her debut novel is out, entitled The First Bad Man, and it is my pleasure to welcome Miranda July to the program today. Miranda, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about the process of writing a novel and how it compares to filmmaking, short stories, art, all the other wonderful things that you've done. Right. Um, Well, I started out thinking it, it would probably be a lot like writing a short story, which it was not at all. Um, My short stories all were written pretty quickly and I didn't do many drafts. Um, And so when I started my first draft of my novel, I was, I was horrified that the writing wasn't, great uh i thought how how can this be um and and i just had to push through for about eight months um with bad writing until i had a draft and then and then i was kind of thrilled to discover it was a lot like editing a movie from there like i had the raw material i had a book and i just had to rewrite with the endless ability to sort of, if we're going to continue with the metaphor, like reshoot new scenes for free. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's really what it felt like. And that was most of the process. I mean, that was two years right there. The good news is, as you say, you'd, it, one, it was for free and you didn't have a lot of other people that you had to bring into the mix. Right. And I loved that. I mean, it's, it's in a way more suited to my personality than, than filmmaking, mm-hmm. which is always like, I, I want it so bad I have to just force myself to to be part of a group. Talk a little bit about the story of the first bad man and, and particularly about Cheryl, your lead character, because in many ways it's funny you talk about the process of making movies which involves so many people versus writing a novel which is about this lonely life that is very much a part of, of who Cheryl is. Right. Cheryl is a 40-something woman who lives alone seems to have always lived alone, maybe never been in a relationship. And she's, she's kind of righteous about it. She, she has all these systems of maintaining her home and, and she likes it that way. She may seem sort of like a pathetic figure from the outside, but she has pride in herself. And, and so it's, it's really horrifying when her bosses force her to take in their daughter uh, this 20-year-old blonde bombshell named Clee, who's who's like her total opposite, um, does not abide by any rules, and has, yeah, no social graces, quite rude, beautiful, um, very problematic. Is there a turning point, a pivot point for somebody like Cheryl when they've lived alone or when anybody has lived alone so long that suddenly the 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 reality of changing that becomes much more problematic than it did before that point. Right. Yeah, I think we really become wed to our our ways. Um, 
I remember actually in an earlier draft, Cheryl had a, a fantasy that if she ever met someone, her dowry would be giving up all her ways. It would be in the absence of something. Um, all I can do is say that on the radio because that actually isn't in the book. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and I think, I mean, that's familiar to me. I think anyone who, like, has lived a, a bit of an adult life, you know, before they met their partner comes in with a whole lot of things, a lot of things that they do <laughs> they don't want to stop doing. And how dramatic is it for Clee when she comes into this environment? Right. Um, well, yeah, so Clee, I mean, you know, going back to your first question, if there's a turning point, I think, you know, it, we could say that when Clee kind of slams Cheryl, presses Cheryl against a wall and tells her she's so sad, like, it it's like the world just turns upside down. I mean, to be not only touched, but, but like hurt, um, is, is just, uh, just a complete shock. And, um, and it has surprising consequences. I mean, I don't think it's giving too much away to say that it's not all bad. Um, yeah. When Cheryl learns to fight back, things begin to change really quickly. And, um, yeah, and Clee wants something from her too. I mean, it's a it's mutually agreed upon that they will they will fight. To what extent has Cheryl thought about or realized at some point that she has been this kind of doormat, for lack of a better description, that she has allowed people to to walk on her to take advantage of her over the years? I don't know that she ever really becomes aware of that, but that that doesn't mean she doesn't transform or or change that. Um, but I don't think it's a simple, like waking up to agency. I think she, um, she becomes responsible first for Clee and then for a baby. And it's that process. Um, it's the sort of, you know, having a focus that's not herself, um, that, you know, that brings about different, you know, different kinds of, um, power but yeah it's not so simple as like a a kind of awareness of herself and for many people even those that that don't go through the things that cheryl does it is often a child that really takes you out of yourself in, in really profound ways that you're even unaware of before it happens right yeah it's it's interesting because i i came up with the this whole idea including the the part about the child before i was had a child or was pregnant, but I have to say it was in the back of my mind. I sort of did the math on how long writing a novel would take, and I thought, well, I'm 30, I think I was 37, like, chances are I'll probably have a child in that time, you know, since I want to do that. And so I kind of built in this this discovery because I didn't know, you know, what what my what what would happen, how I would feel as a mother, but I didn't bother writing too much about that in the first draft while I was pregnant. Um, and I just said to my editor, like, I'll, I'll fill that in next week when I'm a mom. Um, and it was, a, it, it did, uh, it didn't alter the story so much as like uh, becoming a mother's kind of reset me to zero in a way. It was like the world began anew, which is, 
not a bad thing to have happen in the middle of a, a long project or a life for that matter. <laughs> well, talk about that, how it happens for Cheryl, how Cheryl resets, how, how you reset. I mean, because certainly many of the old habits, the old ways, the old attitudes are still there, but they play right. out in different ways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for me, you know, I both was myself, like this, this book was um, the fact that I had this before the child and after was kind of like a security blanket. It was like the one thing that was the same and I could be thinking about it in my head, even in the hospital, you know, like I didn't, no one had to know what I was thinking about. And, and, and yet at the same time, my priorities were completely different. Like I would, the, the book was both so important to me and didn't matter at all. (laughs) Nothing mattered, but like keeping this person alive. Um, and, and I think for Cheryl too, it's, um, it, it kind of, you know, she has this very unusual way of coming to, to motherhood. So she doesn't, you know, she, she doesn't know exactly that she's a mother when the, when the baby is born, I'm trying not to give away a lot right. here. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see she has, um, as, as motherhood like grows and grows, you know, within her, she has such regrets about the beginning of, of that child's life. Um, there's a moment where she realizes like, Oh, part of this process will, will always be, kind of like playing catch up, you know, realizing that I've made mistakes. She says it much better in the actual book. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that's, it's some of the, it's that kind of self-awareness where you realize like, oh, I've I've failed in great ways already and there's nothing to do but carry on. Um, And, you know, that's not, while that's not like empowering, I think that kind of realization gives you strength. I think it actually does make her a stronger person to just to love that much. How does all of this play out against whatever fantasy she might have had all of these years about what these changes and this experience, if she were to ever go through it, might be like? Right. Well, her fantasies are are so fantastical. I mean, they're they're very untethered to, um, you know. I mean, she, she's haunted by a a child a, a baby she met when she was nine um but she, it's always been unclear to her whether that child will be her her husband or her or her child because she was a child when she met it um and that child sort of migrates between babies that she meets i mean so this is just to say that um and and this is uh, you know she also has romantic fantasies about a, a co-worker of hers uh, whose who's affections lie elsewhere in completely inappropriate directions. Um, and, and so these, these things are so, so unreal compared to the real things that happen when a baby comes around. And I guess I relate to that. I mean, of course, you make it more extreme in a book, but I feel like the whole point of fantasy is that it's just, it's just a reflection of, of your shadows and what, you know, what you're not able to actualize. And, and the whole point of reality is that it really could care less about all that. Um, uh, you just have to figure it out. And yeah. And so those, 
um, the transition from one version of life to the other, you know, it's not complete. I mean, she's still Cheryl, but uh, that's, that's probably the biggest thing is, is letting go of um, this sort of fantasies that for her really lead into like completely erroneous worldviews. What role does therapy play for her? Right. She sees, she starts seeing a therapist because she's, she's always had a lump in her throat and, um, and it gets much worse when Clee moves in and it's both helpful, but um, I should say that for some reason, anytime there's, there's someone in my work who's in a position of power, I, I can't help but flip that also. And there's something kind of inherently kinky too about power. Like I, like anyone, anyone who has it, like you, you can't help but sort of sexualize them on in some way. Uh, I think that's true. Is that true? Yeah. Um, and so this therapist, you know, she has a whole submissive relationship of her own that um, that actually plays profoundly into Clee, and Clee learns of it. I mean, Cheryl learns of it. And this is all must be sounding so crazy to your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I usually don't go this far into describing the book for a good reason, I think. Um, it all comes together, trust me. Uh, but anyways, just that the, it's never supposed to happen that the personal life of your therapist is, is the largest part of your process with them, um, and that is the case for Cheryl. Well, it all does come together in Miranda July's book, The First Bad Man. Miranda, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 